Hello, and welcome to Risk Chats with the Firm. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today, we're actually doing a tool cast. This uh, will come out on both Risk Chats as well as uh, AGA's podcast. This is a chat we had with uh, Vladimir Antikarov about the cost-benefit analyses related to enterprise risk management. I thought it was a great topic for both the firm and AGA. So... Tune in to either one and check it out. Here's the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we're happy to have here today Vlad Antikarov, who's going to speak about ERM cost benefits. So a good good morning, Vlad. How are you? Good morning, Paul. I'm good. Okay. Well, won't you give us a little bit about uh, what yourself, what you do, and a little bit about your background? Uh, well, as as like to say these days in Washington, uh, somebody with a um, name like mine uh, owes you an explanation. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, very briefly, I'm originally from Bulgaria and um, spent the early years of my life under the socialist regime there. Fortunately, I was uh, young enough when the Berlin Wall fell and the whole thing crumbled, and I was uh, lucky and honored to be one of the first uh, people to uh, win a Fulbright scholarship and oh. came to this country almost 30 years ago. Uh, I was placed by the Fulbright Committee at Boston University, mm -hmm. and I spent uh, uh, quite a few years in Boston uh, working on graduate degrees and uh, working professionally. Uh, I was uh, lucky again uh, to work for a company called the Monitor Group, uh, which was, uh, dare I say, and I hope I don't offend anybody, a kind of a mini a McKinsey, uh, mm -hmm. and I work in their corporate finance practice. Uh, later, the Monitor Group was acquired by Deloitte, and today the strategy practice of Deloitte is called Monitor Deloitte. Uh, so this gave me an exposure to multiple industries, uh, interesting problems. Uh, I work with uh, companies like AT&T, Lockheed Martin, Roche, uh, Telefonica, Merck. Uh, uh, so it was a great career opportunity. and. Uh, while there, I um, uh, started working with one of my uh, very distinguished colleagues called Tom Copland, and we co-wrote co a book on a topic called Real Options Analysis, and this is going to be actually uh, the theme of our conversation later today. Mm -hmm. And kind of very briefly later, I moved to New York, working in the corporate world, and the last few years I moved to Washington. Uh, my wife works uh, for one of the government agencies. so. Uh, here I'm in Rome and I try to do like the Romans. Uh, right. And that's why uh, hopefully uh, 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 this conversation today is going to be uh, helpful uh, to uh, spread some best practice uh, of risk management from the private sector into the federal government space. Uh, uh, one of my uh, non-for-profit activities is I'm a regional director of Premier, the Professional Risk Management International Association, mm -hmm. which is kind of a sister organization of a firm. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, without uh, many details, it's a global organization, uh, has chapters around the world, and I have the privilege to be the regional director of the DC chapter. Great. Well, we're very happy to have you here. This is, you know, we love to bring in some best practices from other areas to, to the, kind of the federal world, and it sounds exactly like that's what we're, we're talking about today. So why don't we kind of um, just start off, generally speaking, this whole concept of bringing a cost-benefit or options analysis kind of viewpoint to uh, a federal ERM program. 
Well, uh, as we know, the last uh, few years, uh, practically all federal agencies have built their ERM programs. Mm -hmm. So now uh, all these agencies uh, have to uh, decide what kind of risk management activities to do and they have to develop budgets, they have to justify their expenses. So there is a process of competing for resources and proving your uh, worth uh, to the rest of the organization. And also there is a federal agency whose primary mission is so, you know, if you think about it, it's risk management, like Department of Defense, like Homeland Security, Center for Disease Control, within Department of Homeland Security, FEMA. Sure. So those are basically uh, organizations for which primary mission is facing the, the same uh, dilemma. Right. You know, uh, how do I add value? How do I, you know, uh, what is my word to the taxpayer mm -hmm. uh, in the long term? So uh, the, the fundamental way that we uh, make decisions in this space is uh, so-called cost-benefit because resources are also always limited and we try to maximize the benefit from the limited resources. And uh, most cost-benefit methodologies that have been applied, they usually uh, go around uh, kind of a single expected scenario and we map the cost and the benefits of a project along the time span mm -hmm. of its uh, 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 along its time span, and then with some sort of discounting, we try to bring them to a single point and compare them, and uh, hopefully the benefits outweigh the cost. And we compare them to other projects in the optimization process, and we uh, select uh, which projects to do and uh, justify uh, their uh, their resources. Uh, with uh, risk management, uh, you know, most of us are familiar, I, I'm assuming uh, we, call, we follow in certain generic way the cost of frameworks or other frameworks of a similar, uh, of a similar logic. So uh, risk is an event that impairs the ability of the organization to achieve certain objectives. So once we've identified those objectives, then we can identify the events which are risks, and then we're supposed to analyze them and develop risk management programs, implement them and uh, mitigate those risks. Uh, the challenge is that uh, for uh, the risk by definitions are unpredictable and random, mm -hmm. uh, even though that's kind of interesting with the heat diagram, but that's a separate point. So if, if the probability becomes too high, something stops being a risk. So the sun it's setting down every <laughs> night is no longer a risk. Right. So it's kind of an interesting separate topic to, to discuss. Uh, but so uh, the, if we think about it, for many of the risks, both the one that we can control the, uh, the probability and the one that we cannot control the probability, uh, we manage those risks through so-called contingent capabilities. Mm -hmm. So risks have like three fundamental components, probability, exposure, and uh, impact. Uh, so risk management does one or a combination of trying to uh, reduce the probability, if we could, if that's this kind of risk. Mm -hmm. We try to manage our exposure, uh, if that's uh, doable. And then we try to limit the impact through uh, response and recovery. Uh, and you can go through each one of those, but in each one of those we can see that uh, we manage those risks through uh, what I already mentioned, contingent capabilities. And I think that's a very important term and I think that our colleagues should really um, take it and, and become very comfortable uh, because it helps 
with a lot of analytical thinking. Uh, what is contingent capabilities? The, the simple intuition is that uh, you know we all have umbrellas, and we have umbrellas not because we use them every day, unless you live somewhere in the tropics, of course. But we have umbrellas so that if and when it rains, we can open the umbrella and we can stay dry. So it's a contingent capability. We don't use it every day. And here we come to the challenge of uh, kind of analyzing, and I know already many, uh, many federal agencies have been asked to, uh, you know, uh, document the benefit of risk management. And, you know, we all know that we all talk how risk management has created transparency, streamlining, awareness. So those are all benefits, but we still are faced with the dilemma. If we bought an umbrella and it hasn't rained yet, is the umbrella adding value? Mm -hmm. And that's a challenge, uh, obviously, uh, because uh, the money that we spent on the umbrella could have gone to, you know, uh, many other uh, many other uh, needs that are uh, key to the day-to-day -day mission, and people can immediately bet to the reoccurring benefits of those. Right. So uh, the question then is, how do we prove the value of contingent capabilities? Right. And here comes the the big intuition that people have observed is that. Contingent capabilities, from a financial perspective, look like the options in the financial markets. Right. Okay. Uh, and from a risk management perspective, probably more like a put option. So you, you kind of, if in a bad scenario, you limit the downside mm -hmm. by by uh, by owning the, by having the option. Uh, so uh, from this intuition, then uh, the the whole area of the so-called real options analysis have developed. And again, if our listeners uh, Google the topic, they'll see that there's a lot of literature, unfortunately, many of it academic. So that's uh, the point of this podcast, to try to, try to you know, cross the Rubicon and move uh, theory to practice, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the government space. And uh, uh, so the real options analysis is an is a area of finance which takes the methodology and the intuition of option pricing from financial market and applies it to so-called real assets. Um, so that's, uh, and if you think about it, it's the correct cost-benefit framework and methodology of assessing the value of building those contingent capabilities. Right. Well, this is fascinating. So I guess give us some examples of how you can put this idea of sort of this financial options analysis uh, methodology into play for a, a particular program or for an actual risk management program. Sure. Uh, so uh, I have to start by confessing that I'm not aware of uh, this methodology being applied in a U.S. government agency. Uh, but uh, our uh, cousins across the pond uh, in the United Kingdom uh, have already applied it in, in quite a few areas. And uh, I'm just going to discuss two of them. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and we actually uh, later will attach the documents that I'm going to mention to the podcast so that people can look uh, and, uh, you know, deepen their knowledge. Uh, one of the examples is climate change. Mm -hmm. And already in 2009, uh, the UK government, and more specifically Her Majesty's Treasury, that's the document, uh, put an analysis uh, uh, how to account for the impact of climate change. And they discuss the use of real options. Uh, there's a whole chapter there. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting at the end that they're mentioning a study they did called THAMS uh, 2100, which is how to protect London from rising sea levels 
over the next century. And you know, as we all understand, we, you cannot uh, understate the role of London in the UK economy and for the country itself. So the basic challenge there is that we all know that sea levels are rising, but there's a very high level of uncertainty how far, how far and how often and mm -hmm. how fast and all, all that stuff. So uh, uh, the, the, the most expensive and kind of easy way is to build everything and now so that you know we're ready yeah. uh and we assume the kind of a some kind of a worst case scenario and you build around that right uh, but this is obviously uh, the most expensive uh, alternative the smart alternative is to uh stage the investment and look at the project kind of as a lego if that's possible technically and it's possible mm -hmm. in this case and actually build the the a certain base and then keep monitoring the development. So you have all this range of scenarios in terms of severity, mm -hmm. and over time, information is revealed which scenario actually is occurring. Right. And as we learn with time, that's a key understanding of real options, that over time, information is revealed, and we, have, we narrow the range of scenarios, uh, and we can make better decisions. So we build as we need uh, in the future around this scenario. And I just want to immediately make a reference to our U.S. Uh, reality. My understanding from conversations for, uh, for example, USA Corps of Engineers is that unfortunately uh, the federal uh, budget does not allow state investment in that type of uh, uh, climate-related infrastructure that you know the decisions are made either to finance the whole thing or not. Mm -hmm. And that's something to really immediately think about and, and see what reforms could be implemented there with tremendous benefit for the country, uh, the taxpayer and execution and so on and so forth. So that's one example. The second example is again in UK, uh, there is uh, a, a, a gas government regulator called Ofgem and they actually uh, have a, a, a paper which the headline says real options and application of gas network in, interruptible contract options and, and without going into detail uh, basically they're, they're regulating the gas distribution and if you're a gas distributor you have the mandate to meet the needs of your customers but at the same time you're facing the the reality that even those uh, demand grows there is a significant level of volatility there mm -hmm. and the challenge is not again to overbuild too early too much capacity that's going to stay idle and costly uh, so what basically this paper is explaining that it allows gas distributor to have temporary contracts with other suppliers to meet the demand, uh, which gives them more time to figure out the actual growth of demand and to exercise this so-called option to postpone to, uh, mm -hmm. one of the, uh, and actually make uh, their own investment already when, when uh, you know, they're more clear uh, how much the demand has grown. So that's kind of the big idea. So. Uh, those two examples, you know, they may not be the most common, the most usual, but uh, is something that uh, already the UK government has been doing and uh, already has helped the country to optimize uh, the allocation of resources in uh, the energy sector and, uh, uh, you know, basically disaster prevention sector, if you think about the London study. Right. So, and then that's kind of going to my next question, you know, how, how do you put a value on, on you know what 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 decisions you want to make how you're going to spend your money um, and it sounds like this options analysis gives you a way to put actual values to the, the risk versus you know the, the cost 
So, you know, um, speaking of that, because, you know, you do hear a lot from the federal side, you know, what's the ROI going to be on this program? How would you show that? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Right. Uh, well, uh, again, the big benefit of option pricing and option analysis, and that's why the people who uh, contributed to, to the creation of the first option formulas got the Nobel Prize already in the 90s, is that uh, in financial markets, uh, we, if the option is not valuable today, we say it's out of the money. But it still has value because over the time of its availability, there are plenty of scenarios where the option can become very valuable and if exercise mm -hmm. is going to bring benefit to the owner. Right. So that's the intuition with contingent capabilities today. Even though today they're not in use, there are multiple scenarios when, when used, they're going to pro provide benefit and we can calculate the value of this potential benefit today, even though right today they're actually not providing immediate benefit. And that's the big aha with this whole framework. Uh, so uh, it, it also, uh, I, I'm a big believer that this uh, methodology creates the opportunity for much more rigorous analysis. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes people are saying, oh, you know, if this is too detailed, uh, how do we know uh, the probabilities about the future? So the, the general logic is very intuitive and actually follows the causal framework. So basically saying, take, uh, uh, when we say the causal frameworks analyze the risk, basically a fundamental way to analyze the risk is to figure out the level of severity of the risk and the potential distri probability distribution around those levels of severity. Right. Uh, then figure out the, the impact that this risk could uh, have without any mitigation then identify the, the contingent capabilities that you can apply to mitigate those risks, calculate the, the, the savings or the avoided damages along this scenario, and from there goes the real options, the option pricing analytics that basically brings the value to today. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the logic is very intuitive. Uh, right. People are kind of scared a little bit about the math, but you don't have to start with the math. Actually, even qualitative uh, thinking uh, can bring a lot of a lot of value and a lot of insight and understanding, and build a lot of argument around sensible use of resources and improving the portfolio of risk uh, management activities within the agencies. So uh, uh, that's kind of the, the general logic. Sure. So I want to ask you too. I mean, you know, I would assume you have to have. The right inputs to get the right outputs you know kind of junk in junk out you know do we do you feel like agencies have the information they need to to really have the the right inputs into these formulas to properly value these options well that's that's sort of you know garbage in garbage out it's it's a valid it's a valid uh claim but unfortunately in my opinion it's a static claim mm. Because every innovation and all the improvements that we had achieved over the years in our management processes, accounting processes, they themselves have been a process. So, of course, when you start with something new, you don't have all the pieces to make it valuable immediately. But right. if you don't start, you'll never, you'll never mature the technique. Sure. So, uh, I actually am a big believer in the opposite, in reverse engineering. So, if you start with a methodology and again we don't want to over over complicate and, right. and uh, you know the famous Occam razor so you have to have the right level of complexity mm -hmm. to reflect uh, the the complexity of the reality but not more but not less either mm -hmm. so uh, the real option uh, methodology gives you this um, uh, this complexity 
that actually forces you to really think about scenarios, to really think about damages, to really think the benefits, uh, to really think about the timelines and, and staging and implementation. So, opens a lot of a lot of um, a lot of ways to to improve. Uh, the decision process even without the quantification. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, I, we have, uh, in my opinion, again, I may be biased, a brazen disconnect between actually the opposite, uh, uh, sophistication and complexity of input mm -hmm. and crudeness of decision approach. And uh, the, the, the most uh, you know, relevant example, in my opinion here, is all the work that's done around climate change. Right. Uh, over the last uh, quite a few years, we've spent uh, enormous resources and focus on climate science. And today we have a uh, very good and sophisticated understanding about climate patterns and long-term trends and, and volatility and all that stuff around climate in, in different territories around the country and around the world. Uh, the, 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 the reality of all these data is that it's highly probabilistic. So uh, climate re remains a, a random process. So all the, all the analysis that we do doesn't change the fact that it remains a random process. Right. And the problem is that our, then when we say, what are we going to do about this, other than reducing the carbon footprint, which is always a good thing, but when we think about resilience and long-term adaptation, our decision processes are very simplistic. Mm, and right. all this sophisticated information that has been uh, collected, we actually have no way of incorporating into our decision processes. And I'm just gonna give you one simple example, yeah. uh, a kind of a fundamental, one of the fundamental risk management techniques, if we may say so, is building redundancy. Mm -hmm. So you build uh, redundant capacity so that you can continue to operate at a certain level if your primary capability is temporarily disabled. Well, if you're using a classical cost-benefit kind of net present value type, it's very hard to justify redundancy because you're applying double the cost to the same average benefit. Right. There's right. a whole area of real option called switching options where you can model then scenarios and show that if you have the capability to switch between uh, different uh, contingent capabilities and different scenarios, this can bring enormous value right. and then justify uh, you know, building that stuff. So, uh, you know, my, my, my personal belief, and again, obviously, I, I come uh, from a certain point of view, that actually more complicated analytics improves decision process and forces us to clarify our assumptions and assure that they are consistent. Because that's, that's the, the, you know, uh, a key thing all about bias around decision is, first of all, you have uh, unclear assumptions and second, you may hold simultaneously contradictory assumptions without being aware of that. So I think one more question I had for you was, if you can just explain a little bit more about, you know, how row options analysis helps not only with the initial, you know, the initial decision, but also the execution piece. Sure, I'd love to. Uh, so uh, the best way to, uh, to explain this is to compare uh, this to the classical cost-benefit. Again, I call it net present value. I, right. I don't know how many of you listeners familiar, but basically a single scenario analysis. Mm -hmm. So if we base our decision on a single scenario analysis, we know from the beginning that this scenario actually will never happen. Mm. Because the future, that's why we call it expected scenario, the future is going to be around and it's going to be off. So the problem with, uh, with contingent capabilities using this stuff 
is, is not only that doesn't capture truly the benefit, but then in the process of execution, if we have stage, for example, building of those capabilities or other, other flexibilities, uh, in a sense, looking back at this analysis is pretty useless mm. because we're always going to be off. Right. We're saying, well, we knew that's an average. So the moment we've made the decision with this analysis, we can just put it on the, uh, on the shelf and forget about it. The beauty of real option approach is that the way the value comes, you outline scenarios, and under each scenarios, you show where the option should be optimally implemented and the benefit. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, the real options analysis is giving you a contingent plan of implementation. Right. Which is uh, from, you know, we all understand that, uh, you know, in organizational setting, sometimes making decisions, especially difficult decisions, is very difficult, you know, to be a little bit repetitive. So actually pre-agreement, if we as an organization have a pre-agreement that if we find ourselves in this scenario at this time, this is the optimal point to, to, to trigger this right. capability, actually can be enormously powerful in improving the the agility of the organization in mm -hmm. terms of responsiveness and and speed of of, of uh, reaction and and uh, you know uh, right. maximizing the benefit and, and, and minimizing the damage, so it's actually very powerful not only initial decision tool mm -hmm. but actually also execution because you have pre-planned for multiple scenarios and you have built uh, a consensus around optimal actions that you can then quickly take and avoid the whole confusion where we are, right, uh, who's uh, to blame, uh, should we do it, should we not do it, all, all that stuff. It's kind of been done in advance. Exactly, exactly. So that's, that's kind of a big benefit that's, that, that yeah. organizations that adopt this, uh, this way of thinking actually reap those benefits later on. Right. Well, that's an interesting thing too to see if, you know, human nature, do we trust in the models or do we at, still at that time make a decision based on something else? You know, I mean, I think that's human nature. We'll still, oh, well, I don't feel that that's the best decision, even though it's already been mathematically or whatever, you know, determined. Well, well human nature takes more and more what is a vacuum of rationality. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we cannot uh, guarantee that uh, rationality always will overcome uh, politics and self-interest. Well, sure. I mean, you can actually push this one, one step further. In the mm -hmm. private sector, you actually then try to align the incentives of people right. around that type of execution. Because if you, have a, if you have a contradiction between incentives and optimal decision making, yes, you're going to have friction. Right. So that's something to actually think about uh, in the long term. Uh, and I know in the government sector, there's a lot of rigidity around the, that, that situation. But, you know, with time, uh, you know, maybe improvements can be done there as well. Right. Well, there's, I mean, there's big things out now, the evidence-based decision-making acts, right. things like that. I mean, exactly. I think folks really are trying to push us in this direction. So, you know, hopefully we'll see <laughs> where the future leads us. But uh, so speaking of the future, if, uh, if people want to learn more about this or more examples or details, where would you guide people to get to go? Uh, well, I mean, I don't want to kind of sound self-promotion, but <laughs> I, my book is called Real Options Practitioner's Guide. Uh, it's been around for quite a few years, so people can find it. Uh, I actually recommend that you start with even something more basic. So just Google, mm -hmm. read the basic intuition. Uh, I think, I hopefully, our conversation today conveyed the idea that option thinking is very intuitive because uncertainty is very intuitive. We actually do it all the time. Uh, so the first thing is just to understand and maybe then understand the basic uh, 
types of optionality that exist there, you know, uh, switching options, option to postpone, learning options, uh, embedded options. So, and then basically start to look around as a risk management function and identify which part of your activities are those contingent capabilities. Right. And how do you expect them to be useful under what scenarios, uh, how much they cost, what are the benefits. Just, just start by uh, you know, building, building the intuition, documenting what you have, uh, putting the data, and over time you can start progressing then to more and more sophisticated analytics. But I believe that it's an enormous benefit to even take those first few steps and, and start this process. And I think, honestly, sooner or later, I mean, uh, we know that uh, uh, we're gonna start feeling budgeting pressures in not that distant future. So right. we're all gonna be asked to do more with less. And we really have to sharpen uh, our arguments right. and our operations to justify uh, our forward uh, value and existence. It's gonna be inevitable challenge to all of us. Well, great. Yeah, and we'll also have links to the uh, to the papers you mentioned, the examples, and uh, and uh, to to the website for your organization too. I think that'd be great for folks sure. to learn more about PRMIA. Did I get that right? Premia. Premia. There <laughs> we go. Well, again, Vlad, thanks for joining us, and I really uh, enjoyed having you here. Thank you, Paul. It has been a pleasure. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out at affirm.org. You can see all our podcasts there. Hopefully, you enjoyed the summit. I know I did. A lot of great ideas for further podcasts, so we'll be getting to those soon. So until next time, this is Paul Marshall for Risk Chats with a Firm. <laughs>